All right, let me say a quick prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Uh, Would you open our hearts to whatever you would have uh, us here tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Have you ever uh, watched or a movie or read a book or read a story that began with the line, once upon a time? Once upon a time. Uh, There's a matching kind of closing line to this as well. And you find this line, once upon a time, more in like fantasy books or fantasy stories, kind of mythologies or Disney movies. And uh, there's there's a matching line at the end of these stories. It says, and they all lived happily ever after, right? So that's kind of our American version. Uh, The Hungarian equivalent is they lived happily until they died. So that's pretty nice. I I prefer the Bulgarian equivalent, which is, and for three days they ate, drank, and had fun. I feel like that's a little bit more realistic to life. Uh, If you're like me, when you hear that and they live happily ever after, you always think, no, they didn't. They had a life. They had uh, hardships, and, and they had good times and bad times. They had all sorts of uh, times. But you wonder, well, what happens next? In the book of Exodus, we come to a point uh, in chapter 15 where God has just delivered the Israelites from Egypt. All right? So all the uh, Egyptians have just perished. The, the Egyptian army has perished in the Red Sea. And this could be a point where it says, all right, and they lived happily ever after. It's kind of a a natural ending. If you watch some of the modern movies, The Prince of Egypt or Exodus, Gods and King, like this is where the story tends to end because this is the most dramatic moment. But the book of Exodus is a lot longer than this. There's many more chapters because the story continues. The book of Exodus is a little bit more like the Persian ending, which says, this book has come to an end but there is still a story to be told. I like that one. So as the initial kind of rescue story ends a little bit, it transitions now into a refinement story. So the first 15 chapters of Exodus, Exodus 1 through 15, verse 21, uh, can be summed up in one word, salvation. It's a salvation story. God is saving his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of bondage. He, he saves baby Moses at the Nile. He, he saves Moses in the wilderness. He, he saves the, the people as he sends the plagues on Egypt. He saves the Israelites. And then he saves them as he delivers them from the Red Sea. But as we get into the rest of the book of Exodus, it's going to transition from salvation to another word, sanctification. So there's a theme that emerges that God is now, he's he's delivered his people, and now he's interested in working on them, on on changing them. For those that don't know what the word sanctification means, uh, it's it's an interesting word here, and it means to to consecrate, make holy, or set apart. It's kind of this idea of washing something or making something clean. You take someone who's dirty and you begin to you know, uh, sanctify them, to, to cleanse them. That's what God is interested in doing with his people, with the hearts of the Israelites. And this is what we're going to see through the rest of the book of Exodus. In the tabernacle, the priesthood, the Ten Commandments, it's all about God beginning to sanctify his people. He gives them the law so they can begin to honor him with their lives. So, so ultimately they can begin to know him. So the story is changing from one of salvation to sanctification. Now I brought a map today to show you uh, the, the Exodus route. And I wanted to show you this map for two reasons. 
to ground the story of the Exodus in reality. Uh, so you can get this map in the little study guide, Exodus uh, study guide that we have for our small groups if you want one. But I really want to ground this story in reality because it's true. It happened in a real time, in a real place. 1446 B.C. is when we can date it from the scriptures and uh, from uh, some uh, evidences there. And it happened then. And then uh, there's another reason. So God, so God brought the people of Israel. He brought them out of the land of Goshen. You might remember that uh, the Israelites and the, the shepherds were in that region. And he brought them down to the Red Sea. They crossed over, uh, so this is the, uh, the Gulf of Suez, crossed over there. It's about 150 feet deep, and we see two walls of water. And then they get to the other side, they get to the wilderness side. So if you were listening as Monica was reading, you heard kind of the desert of sin, the, the other deserts in the passage. This is in that region, the wilderness region. And finally, they make it to Mount Sinai, which we haven't made it to yet in our story. So we want to ground the story of the Exodus in a real time, in a real place. And second, I want you to see that God cares about long-term change. Because the story of the Israelites does not end here. Uh, They go to Mount Sinai and eventually they head up towards the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. And it takes them 40 years before they can enter the promised land. See, God is interested in long-term, real change in the lives of his people. And I like the kind of the image as well because it really, it breaks down three parts of kind of what it means to walk with God. There's the initial salvation, the pulling out of Egypt. God rescues his people. He takes them on a journey of sanctification through wilderness years. And eventually one day they're going to reach the promised land, kind of the, the, uh, the, the place that God has promised to dwell with his people. Now, if I were to take your life, think about your life for a moment, and I were to draw a map and put it on the screen, what would it look like? I'm sure it would, uh, maybe it would bounce back and forth, maybe it would stay relatively in the same area, but you would, maybe you could map some of your life experiences. See, God takes each one of our lives, and we're also on a journey as well. And Christianity really puts forth this journey of God taking us from people that don't love him, that don't know him, and saving us and then sanctifying us, and one day bringing us to that eternal promised land. If you're a mature Christian, you remember when you got saved, and then perhaps you've gone through many years of kind of sanctification. You've been walking through uh, springs, you've gone through wildernesses, and you have learned to, to love and trust God through it all. If you're a new Christian, you're just beginning the journey. You're just getting out of Egypt. You have years and years of sanctification to look forward to. Oh, boy. And if you're not a Christian, if you're just here, you're, you're interested in what's going on and you're here to learn, I want you to know that Christianity is more than just saying a prayer. Christianity is more than just that initial deliverance out of Egypt from our sins. There's a whole lifetime of God shaping and transforming us into the people that he wants to make us into. Sanctification ultimately is about making us like God, not in our power, not in kind of our, our all-knowingness, but in our character, that we reflect kind of the goodness of God, the love of God, the joy of God. So today we're picking up in Exodus chapter 15, Uh, verse 22, and it's here that we begin to see God sanctify his people. And it starts with God testing his people. 
God sanctifies his people by testing them. So the, the Red Sea, they just crossed the Red Sea, and they've, they've traveled out into the wilderness, into the desert for three days. But they don't find any water until they get to the springs of Mara. And you can imagine the scene. There's about two million people, two million Israelites. They're parched. They're thirsty. They hear this rumor, oh, there's water. Maybe it's a fountain. Maybe it's a spring, a well. And they just, they, maybe they just rush it. Two million people. And then someone cries out, this water is bitter. This water is Mara. Mara. And you can just imagine the groans that went up from these people. Oh no, we're going to die out here. Verse 25 says, There the Lord put them to the test. There the Lord wanted to see how they would respond. If they remember that just three days prior, God literally separated a sea. And, and made them walk through it. Walls of water, that God can control water. But somehow they've already forgotten, and they are putting God to the test. See, there's two different responses you can have when God puts you to the test in your own life, and there's two different responses we see in this passage. Response A is grumbling. It's complaining. complaining. The word grumble means to murmur or rebel. The picture we get is pockets of Israelites kind of grouping up into little cliques, little groups, and turning their back on Moses and whispering about his leadership, about him taking them into the wilderness. Now they're going to die, really undercutting what God has called him to do. They murmur. They grumble. They rebel. The word mara means bitter. And some of you may have heard the story of Ruth. Now, the, the book of Ruth, there's a story at the beginning where a woman named Naomi, uh, she's in the, the, the promised land, so in the land of Canaan. This is several hundred years later, and there's a famine that hits the land of Israel. And, and so she and her husband, they go as refugees to another country. And in that country, uh, she, has, she has two sons, and they get, uh, they get married. But before they get married, her husband actually dies. So she thinks, oh, no, this is not a good situation. But thankfully, my, my, my two sons, they get married to the two women in that country. And then what happens to her two sons? They die. <laughs> so she's lost her husband. She's lost her son. She doesn't have any grandchildren. The line will not continue. And she goes back to Israel just defeated, just destitute, realizing that for the rest of her life, she will probably be poor and impoverished. And she renames herself. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, call me bitter, because I am upset, I am in anguish, I am mad, because God has taken everything from me and he has left me destitute. See, Mara describes the bitterness in the water, but it also describes something else. It describes the state of their hearts. Mara describes the state of the Israelites' hearts, that there is bitterness inside. See, God tests us to see what's in our hearts. God tests us to help us grow, to deal with that bitterness. But what's our usual response? I know what my usual response is. When God gives me hardships or things I don't want to do, I say, God, I can't do this. God, I certainly don't want to do this. I can't handle this. 
I just watched a, a TED Talk. I enjoy watching those every once in a while. And I watched one on, it's called a growth mindset. And it was a lady, it was just a 10-minute speech, and it talked about uh, kids who take tests. And they purposely tested some, some children with questions that they knew they could not do. So harder than they, they had learned. And there was two different responses. There was the first kids who said, I just can't do this, kind of threw their hands up and said, I'm done. And they tested poorly. And the other kids said, hey, this looks like a challenge. This is something to be overcome. This is an opportunity to learn, to grow. See, one kid said, I can't do it. And the other kid said, I can't do it yet. That word yet is important. See, God gives us times of testings, not so that we can say, I can't do it, but so that we can say, I can't do it yet. And it's an opportunity to realize that in my own power, in my own strength, I will never overcome this. This is why I need God. God can help me. God can strengthen me. God can equip me for the most difficult of trials. Those times where my heart wants to murmur are times when God is good. And he can help us. That he is worth trusting. That God is molding and shaping us even in those trials to be the kind of people he wants us to be. To reflect him more clearly. So this leads us to the second response, which is trust. I think uh, Andy gave a preview of some of my points here. Trusting God. So how does Moses respond differently than the Israelites? Well, he turns to God and he cries out. Moses doesn't politely approach God. He just turns to God and he cries out. and He says, do something, God, do something. Help us, help me. I was home for Christmas, and uh, my brother, Matthew, he has a, a son. Uh, he's about four years old, and he was sleeping upstairs, and there's an intercom system. And it was like in the afternoon, and just out of nowhere on the intercom system came the words, Dad, can you hear me? <laughs> it's one of the cutest things I'd heard in a while. But that's kind of what Moses is doing. He's just crying out to God. He's saying, God, do you hear us? Do you hear our needs? Do you hear what we're going through? Can you help us? Both Moses and the people are scared. Both Moses and the people are stressed. Maybe you're scared and maybe you're stressed. And the difference between response A and response B is who you direct your words to. So what do the people do? They turn their backs on God. They turn their backs on Moses and they talk to their friends. <laughs> they talk to their family and they said, ah, this is, this is what's going on. And what does Moses do? He says, here's this problem, but instead of talking to them, I'm going to turn to God, and I'm just going to talk to God. See, that's the difference between grumbling and trusting, is who you direct your words to. God calls us to direct our needs to him as well. And we don't need to trust when the going gets easy. Right after this, God takes the Israelites to an oasis. God doesn't really test them right after this. He takes them to a place where there's springs, there's trees. It's a lovely place. You'd probably want to hang out there. But we don't learn to trust God in those oasis seasons, do we? When things are going well. When we have all we need. And when God takes them into the wilderness, they don't, they don't say, Oh, God, thank you for this opportunity for me to grow as a person. <laughs> thank you, God, for this opportunity for me to develop and mature and learn things like patience. They grumble. <laughs> and that's God's challenge to us too. 
To not say, God, the glass is half empty, but God, I'm, I'm waiting for you to fill my glass. I'm waiting for you to, to fill me up at the oasis. The passage at the end in verse 26, God says, I am the Lord who heals you. I am Yahweh Rophe. See, God is the oasis. God is the, the opportunity to be refreshed no matter our circumstances, no matter our trials. When our heart feels bitter and feels like grumbling, the solution is not inside us. The solution is a healing balm that God provides. God invites us to him and says, come to me, come to the oasis. I loved last week when Terry challenged us to just spend time in God's word, just spend time praying this week. I took that challenge up, but I hope that, I just want to re, kind of re-give that challenge this week. Let's spend some time going to the oasis because we're going to go through desert moments. We're going to go through desert paths. But if we take the time to encounter the one who can heal us, the one who can refresh us, those, those dry spells won't feel as harsh. And God wants to encounter us because that's how he changes us. That's how he molds us. That's how he sanctifies us. God sanctifies us by testing us. In chapter 16, we see another way that God begins to sanctify the people. He sanctifies us by providing for us. See, in chapter 16, the testing only grows, but so does the grumbling. They go out into the, the wilderness again, into the desert, and this time, well, they complain about the food. We don't have enough food. We brought enough water, I guess, this time, but we didn't bring enough food. And then they began to say, they begin to talk about how great Egypt was. Remember the beef stew in Egypt? Remember the alligator barbecue? Remember the pita pancakes? It was really, really good in Egypt. And this is just, just not true. <laughs> in Egypt, they were slaves. They were in bondage. They were, their, their, their boys were getting thrown into the Nile. It's easy to, to forget God's goodness in the past and remember kind of our own imaginary goodness in the past instead. But God has, has a plan to change his people, and it's a, it's, a, it's a plan of grace. It's God stepping into their lives and just giving them goodness. God's bringing the oasis to them by providing for their daily needs. Provision number one. And God provides for our daily needs needs as well. Moses says to them, you're not complaining against me, you're complaining against God. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring, God, God is going to bring food this evening, he's going to bring quail, and in the morning, he's going to bring some bread. And Exodus chapter 16, verse 12 tells us why. It says, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites, this is God speaking, tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. God is going to provide bread from heaven so that they can learn to trust him daily, so that they can learn to trust him with their needs. Dew is going to come on the ground, and then that dew is going to melt, and underneath that dew are going to be flakes of this bread-like, frost-like substance that they can eat. And not knowing what it is, they turn to each other and they say, what is it? In Hebrew, that sounds like the words manna. Manna. What is it? It's manna. We'll just call it that. <laughs> not super creative in the desert. But there are rules for this bread. You can only gather enough for today. 
you shouldn't gather any more for tomorrow except for on the sixth day. And when the sun comes out in the desert, this manna is going to melt away. Of course, they ignore Moses, the people ignore him, and they do what they want. What happens? Maggots fill the bread, and it smells, and it stinks, and it's, it's gross. God is teaching his people to depend on him daily. He's giving him these rules so that, you know, they don't know if the food's going to show up tomorrow. They just have to trust God. God, it's going to come tomorrow. We're just, we don't have any other choice. We have food enough for today. We have provision for today. And there's goodness in that. There's goodness that God can just provide us with our daily needs, and we don't need to worry about our daily needs, do we? Maybe you know of another famous teacher in the Bible that talked about God providing for your daily needs. We actually read a prayer of his earlier that he taught us to pray. Jesus taught us to pray, uh, you know, give us today our daily bread. I'm so glad that we said that prayer tonight. When his original audience would have heard Jesus teach the people that, they would have thought back to this moment in the Exodus when God taught his people long ago to depend on him for their daily bread. Jesus is incredibly biblical. Later in the passage, Jesus says, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to worry. God will provide your daily food. Do not worry about your life, what you eat or what you drink. He's referring back again to the Exodus. See, we're supposed to trust God daily. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Not just that initial prayer, but just getting to know the goodness of God over a lifetime, cultivating that trust. Maybe some of you have heard of this guy. His name is George Mueller. I wanted to give a really current sermon illustration, so he's from the 1800s. But this guy is famous for praying prayers and God answering them. He was, a, he was not so much a missionary, but he founded some orphanages. He founded one specific orphanage and a whole bunch of schools. I think he took care of like 10,000 orphans over the course of his lifetime. And he was also a pastor for a while, but he would never share with people what his need was. He would never say, you know, he'd never send out support letters. <laughs> he would just pray, God, you know, would you provide? And there's an example of this where one day they got up, they had 300 orphans, and there was no food. There was no breakfast. And so what did he do? He said, well, go ahead and sit in the kitchen, sit down, and I'm going to pray for the meal. And so he sat down, he said a prayer, and he said, Lord, thank you for this meal, Amen. And he sat there, and all the kids. And then there was a knock on the door. And it just so happens that the, the, the local baker came in and said, God just laid it on my heart last night to, to make you some bread. So I made three batches of loaves because I, I figured you guys would need some food this morning. They brought the, the loaves in. But God wasn't done yet because a couple minutes later, there was another knock on the door, and the milkman came. And apparently his cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he said, this is going to go bad. So do you want some milk? And so they had bread and they had milk. And that's an amazing story. I, I think it was like he wrote down that God answered his prayers like 50,000 times. That's how many times he was able to, to write down that God had answered his prayers. We have a God who speaks into our lives that same way. We can come before a God when, when we're concerned about our daily needs, when we're concerned about our daily bread. God, I can't, I, I'm, I'm concerned about this medical bill. I'm concerned about this co-payment. I don't know if I'm going to have enough money for this. Would you provide for my needs? God, I'm concerned about my job. 
I need a job to take care of my family. Can you, can you provide for my needs? God, I'm concerned about where I'm going to sleep tonight or where I'm going to live. Can you provide for my needs? God, I'm concerned that I, that I, I don't know anyone and I'm, I'm broken and I'm lonely. Can you provide for this need? And maybe sometimes God will do a miracle, something like Exodus, or other times he'll use ordinary people to answer your prayers. That's the kind of God we believe in. He's beautiful. God gives us opportunities to trust him. He tests us. But then he provides for our needs. When we call on him, it's amazing. It's like God puts it in our hearts to pray just so that we can see him move. So provision number one is that he provides for our needs daily. He also provides for our rest needs. Provision number two. Flip one here. Very briefly, I want to point out that here in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 16, we really have the first institution of the weekly Sabbath, the weekly rest. Now, we saw that hinted at in Genesis chapter 2, where it says God rested on the seventh day. But this is the first time that Moses begins to codify it. He says, don't bring in more more manna on that sixth day because on that seventh day, uh, bring in double the amount of manna on the sixth day because on the seventh day, you're going to rest. And this is just a simple reminder to them that God can provide for their daily needs, but he can also provide for these rest needs, this this weekly moment of rest. And I think this should be challenging to us as well. And it's incredible what the Bible is doing here. Because in the first half of the chapter, it is comforting the poor. It is saying the God who, 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 who... we have a God who cares for the poor, who's, who's going to provide for daily needs if you don't have your food. But we also have a God who challenges you. Because if you're the kind of person that, that works all the time, that says, you know, I don't need God because I have a good paying job. In fact, I'm, I'm answering my emails right now. <laughs> Our God challenges you to say, no, take a break. Slow down. He confronts the strong so that we learn to depend on him. And he comforts the weak, knowing that we can depend on him. That's the truth of Christianity, the truth of Christ. If you don't have a a Sabbath day each week where you just take a break from either studies or your job or, or work, I challenge you to try to take that. Try to take a day at the oasis. Take a day with God so that you can be refreshed. You'll actually get more out of those other days if you do that. And provision number three is that God can provide for our future needs. Uh, God gives Moses, he says, take a, take a jar, put some manna in it, and this will be a sign for you. This will be a symbol uh, for generations going forward. See, in, in 40 years, they reach the promised land, they reach the land of Canaan, and as soon as they cross the Jordan River into the promised land, this just stops. The manna stops. But they still have that jar as a reminder that God took care of them. God took care of them a generation before. And if God could take care of our forefathers, our ancestors, well, he can take care of us. He can take care of us into the future. Uh, We believe in a God who who doesn't care just about today. He, He cares about tomorrow, so you don't have to worry about tomorrow. I wanted to read you a quote from Tim Chester. Uh, where he talks about giving, that God gives us what we need when it happens. So God doesn't kind of give you your needs for tomorrow until tomorrow. So we don't need to worry about tomorrow. 
It says, God's, God doesn't give grace today for tomorrow. Don't worry about how you would cope if. Don't play scenarios. You are not given grace for ifs and maybes. You will be given grace for today. You will have the grace for the next day when it comes, and it will not come till tomorrow. To me, that's incredibly challenging and incredibly encouraging. It means if I'm worried about something in the future, I can just say, you know what? God is not going to give me the grace I need to handle that till tomorrow. So the more I worry about it isn't going to help. But I can rely on God that God will show up tomorrow. God will show up when I need him to show up. And God puts reminders in our lives. Takes a jar and puts it in manna. Uh, puts manna in it. It kind of reminds me of a cookie jar. God takes these, these symbols, this cookie jar, and says, here, have this as a reminder of my goodness, of my sweetness. The manna tasted sweet. What's your cookie jar? What's a way that you can remember the goodness of God? For me, it's my spouse. It's Monica. It's my house. When I go home, I can say, wow, God, thank you for this. And actually, it's every one of you. When I look out at you and I see this congregation, I think, wow, God, you're so good. You're a weekly reminder of God's goodness. We each have those in our lives. What are they? Call them to mind. So God sanctifies us by testing us and by providing for our needs. And most importantly, God sanctifies us as we encounter him. We're looking at chapter 17 now. Halfway through Genesis chapter 16, God appears to the whole Israelite encampment and says, he appears in a, in a cloud and says, the glory of God appeared. And God says, you're going to see me in the morning. Now, what happens the next morning is manna shows up. The cloud does not come back. Somehow, the people are to encounter the glory of God as, as they meet him in their daily needs. See, we encounter God as he provides for us every single day. It's not just those big, miraculous, supernatural moments. It's those moments where we pray a small prayer and God answers with a small answer. But those are moments that we encounter God's glory. But I also believe this points forward to a more beautiful day. A more beautiful day when the glory of God will appear on earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you know the, 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 the ministry of Jesus. And in John chapter 6, he actually calls himself the bread. He calls himself the bread that came down from heaven. John 6, 41 says this. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him. Because Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. <laughs> Exodus and Genesis really parallel each other. In both, the people of God like grumble and complain about God. <laughs> in John, they grumble and complain about Jesus, who is God in the flesh. He's, he's God who's come to walk among people. And in both, the message is that God can provide for their needs. It takes some humility coming before God and saying, God, I'm willing to accept you. I want to encounter you here. So Jesus, when he calls himself the bread that came down from heaven, he is saying, I am the glory of God, and I am what you need. I am your daily need. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is our daily need, that he is our manna? I believe it. Sometimes it's hard to practice it, but he is. He's our, he's our daily need. And he promises to grow us, to transform us, to, to make us more like him 
as we depend on him, as we encounter him. See, true sanctification isn't just becoming more like some general vague sense of God. It's becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's aligning our lives to Jesus' life. So that when people encounter us, they say, there is something different. There is something out of this world about that person. That's what sanctification is. We all need to encounter God. The Israelites grumble, and it says they put him to the test. They put God to the test. See, God was testing them, and now they begin to grumble again. They go out into the wilderness, and just they, they, they grumble. They don't have water this time around. It's amazing. They do have manna. <laughs> they are getting manna every single day, and somehow they're still grumbling. They're putting God to the test. And Moses again goes before God, and, and, and he kind of gets angry. He says, they're, they're almost ready to stone me. Moses begins to grumble. <laughs> See, grumbling can be, uh, uh, it goes around. It infects. <laughs> the whole Israelite community together needs to encounter God. They need to sing together the goodness of God. Back to Genesis chapter 15. See, ultimately, we all need to encounter God's grace. Notice what happens next. Moses takes the Israelites, he takes the, the, the elders of Israel, and he goes before God, and God says this. Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. The water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So there's this rock. God says, take your staff, Moses, and I'm going to stand before you. I'm going to be on that rock, and I want you to strike the rock. That's powerful, because what is happening in this moment is Moses is striking God. See, God has the right here to put everyone to death for testing God. God has that right. He could kill all two million of them in one moment. And what does God do? He takes the punishment. That staff is a symbol of judgment. It's also a symbol of salvation. God takes the beating for them. See, this reveals the heart of God. See, our hearts and their own sin and their own brokenness are bitter, but God's heart isn't. God's heart, even when he would be so justified in striking everyone down, his heart is good. His heart is compassionate for his people. His heart loves and is willing to take the consequences for our sin. And in a few years, in 1,400 years, Jesus is going to come. And it says that, that Jesus was actually present in this moment, symbolically. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says, Our ancestors, they drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. See, somehow, mysteriously and amazingly, Jesus was present with the Israelites at that rock. And when Moses struck the rock, he was striking Christ. And one day, that striking, that beating would really happen on a tree at Golgotha, and Jesus would really die. But until that time, symbolically, Jesus took it at the cross, so that those Israelites that lived that were in the wilderness, that they could receive salvation as they put their faith in God and what God was doing at that rock. And today, we look backwards. We remember Jesus. 
And if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to know him. That he's, he's the God who was willing to be struck for us because he loves us and he wants to change our hearts. See, that's what will change your heart when you realize how good and gracious God's heart is. That he wants to take his heart out and he wants to give it to you. He wants to make you like him. He wants to transform you. I have one final question and one final thought as we close. The first one is, have you encountered God? Have you encountered his grace? His life-changing, life-transforming grace? God loves you too much to leave you as you are. God, God loves you so much he wants to change you. <laughs> but he wants to make you something better. He wants to make you more like his son, Jesus, who's perfect. And he does it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The good news of Christianity is that one day we will have a happily ever after. One day Christ will return and everything will be perfect. We will live in eternity that way. But by that time, God will have changed our hearts so that we will be the kind of people that you will want to live with forever. You will want to live with each other for eternity because Jesus will will have changed us. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for what Christ has done for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the rock. Thank you for taking what we deserve. It's in your name we pray. Amen.